Welcome to another episode of Canada FM, the show where we dive deep on Canadian bands who didn't really do much outside of uh, the Great White North. I'm Ted. Brian here. And uh, this would be our second kick at the can for this one. All transparency. We tried recording it last week. This, that, and the other didn't work out. And so if some of this sounds rehearsed, it's because we've been through about half of this episode before. Yeah, the, the the first time, and I've heard this on other podcasts. I've heard them say, "Oh, this is the second kick of the can for technical reasons or whatever." But it's a mixture of technical reasons, and uh, we were just both just kind of out of sorts. Long work week, trying to record this on a Saturday. Yeah, I'll I'll try to turn left where I turned right before, just to try to mix it up. But we'll we'll see where we go with this. Hey Ted, before we get started and you go into your whole spiel, I have a I have a I have a riddle for you, Trebek, or a question riddle? for you. Is, is it a riddle? No, it's a question. I was trying to do the thing from Celebrity Jeopardy where he's like, I want to propose a conundrum, a riddle, if you will. <laughs> the Sean Connery thing? I forget. <laughs> no, the Sean Connery thing. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, anyway, I have a uh-huh. political question for you. Oh, great, because that's exactly what we need right now. Just a question. Uh, so I've been, I haven't paid attention to anything in the longest time. Yeah. I didn't realize a random Google search found that the new radicals reunited after 22 years to play the Trump or uh, Biden inauguration. Yeah. What do you got, new? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like this is the thing. I don't. That's all news. I know. This is the thing. I've had my head in the sand doing nothing for the last three months. I I literally go on the internet to like fart around, but I never wow. look up any new. It's going to be even older when we release this episode. Yeah, I was thinking back. The Trump inauguration, they had three doors down. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just thinking, like, what kind? I mean, I know three doors down isn't, by the way, when I said political question, this is totally a mislead. It's all about this, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I just want to get you all worked out. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's what? there in our promo, which will be released by now. No politics. <laughs> if you, I don't know, do, do they have big shindigs when the, we get? a new prime minister do they have bands that play their inauguration type deal the answer to that usually no i didn't think so um usually when bands and politics converge it's canada day and that's a very nonpartisan kind of event right um yeah i know like like trudeau went to the hip slash show but that was more he just went because he's a fan yeah. And what they mean to Canada, then the hip were like pay, playing a benefit for him and stuff like that. Like there have been um, bands that will do uh, political songs for candidates to help uh, raise money and stuff like that. But as a whole, no. The, the, when when the president, uh, prime minister signs in, um, it's actually kind of cool. They, they have to do this long walk and it's usually in the winter all of the uh, cabinet ministers and they sit in a room and he calls them up one by one and they sign in and they, they're given their um, portfolio, their, their cabinet designation. And uh, it's, it's extremely formal. There's uh, not a whole lot of pomp and circumstance to it. And uh, yeah, no, no, we, we don't really do that up here. There's, there's the, our inauguration is very different because again, like uh, it has to be okay by the governor general for it yeah. to happen. So, 
And we okay, don't even so. have a governor general right now. So if we have an election before we have a new governor general, there could be anarchy. <laughs> uh, okay. So in an alternate reality where Teddy and Brian were Yankee doodles and one of us got to be the president, what, yeah. what either one hit wonder band or like, uh, like who would you get to play your inauguration? Oh, Assuming- it's got to be a one hit wonder. Or like whatever, like. Well, I I want the Barry can't say someone there. No, I'd want to. That's impossible anyway. I know. Uh, but I'd I'd want the bare naked ladies. Absolutely want them. I'd like to think my politics would jive with theirs, and I'd want it Ed and Steve. They would have to reunite. <laughs> the new president, Prime Minister Jessup. Uh, uh, to do a one hit wonder. Well, I know that the the reason that the Biden administration picked the one hit wonder of uh, the, the new radicals was because they were really looking for things that made people happy. And they're just looking for like happy things. And that song made so many people happy. They had the cranberry juice guy. You know, the guy drinking the cranberry juice in the video, yeah. he skateboard and he's singing along to Fleetwood Mac. He was there. Uh, what would be a one hit wonder that? Oh, I, I, Len. Yeah, uh, that'd be. Roll out Len. <laughs> Len Sunshine. That'd get everyone happy. But yeah. those inauguration events are always in the winter anyway, so yeah. you wouldn't get that nice beach vibe to it. But uh, yeah. That's who I'd get. That's a good How call. about you, Brian? Honestly, when I posed that question, last, Prime Minister last, likely the last Prime Minister we'd ever have. <laughs> oh, I would burn it all to the ground and be like, oh, you're all in for a rude awakening. Yes, but who would play your Canadian inauguration? Um, uh, you know, you posed this question. I know. I didn't I actually have think an answer about it. hot and ready to go. No, that's a, that was the thing. I, I didn't actually think about it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't have time to think about it. I still came up with an answer quicker than this. Well, and thanks to the magical world of editing, this is going to seem like it's lightning quick. <laughs> um, I'd probably say Sloan, and I'd have a very specific set list, a very upbeat, like uh, okay. not, not any of their like sl- like slow jams. As much as I like them, I'd be like – uh, I, I pick like three songs. Like, you got to play these or no deal. <laughs> well, and, and that's par for the course, too, because that inauguration of that like that, they don't do a full set. That's you play a couple of songs and then you're out. Except for the well, the when the guess who played at the White House, they were told not to play American Woman. And uh, Cummings basically told, I think it was Nixon to be like, piss off. <laughs> they played at the White House to guess who? Yeah, because I think it was Nick. I think it was Nixon or Ford's daughter or some one of them. I don't know who was a big yeah. Guess Who fan. So they got invited. Just it wasn't at an inauguration or anything. It was just some random shindig. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and so they got and because the reason I know this is because my dad's a big Guess Who fan. He just has yeah. these random tidbits, but he'll tell them to me all the time. They're like <laughs> it like same ones every couple of years. The Guess Who will pop on the radio. I'll be with my dad. It's like you know they were told to play Amer- not to play American Woman. They did it anyway. I was like, yes, dad, you told me. <laughs> God, I do that now. I'm just going to get worse when I get older. I'm going to have one story I tell all the time. <laughs> all right. Like one Mr. Ted Mosby. Okay. <laughs> don't do not do that to me. Don't make me. Uh, anyway, you ready for this week's episode? Oh, I've been ready. Done I've been the introduction. We've been doing this for two weeks. I've Ladies been listening gentlemen. for the last like three. It's Canada's. 
answer to reggae-influenced new wave, possibly the great producer in rock and roll history, maybe. The band that started him off, it's Paul Hyde and Bob Rock, the magic that was the Paolas. We're going to get into this this week, uh, and I should give you a little background on our two before we get into their steam careers, both within the Paolas and with other projects. Uh, Paul Hyde, the vocalist of Paolas, originally from England. Guitar player Bob Rock, originally from Winnipeg. Somehow, both of them wound up in British Columbia, Langford, British Columbia to be exact, in 1978. They got a bassist, they got a drummer, and they paid, and the Paolas were born. Now, usually, Brian, when you start a band, and quite often we'll, uh, we'll talk about this on Canada FM, you've got to toil through the club scene. Sometimes you're not even playing clubs. You're playing community centers or school dances or backyard barbecues. These guys had the luxury of not having uh, to do that. Bob Rock already had aspirations of being a producer when they were in high school and was working as a recording engineer at Little Mountain Sound Studios in Vancouver when the band was formed. So he was like, hey, guys, I got free studio time. Come on in. They came in and they recorded a demo, and that's really where things started. That's like, uh, it's kind of like Drake. You know how he's like started from the bottom, now we're here? But really, he started on a very successful TV show. Yeah. <laughs> started kind of near the top. That's kind of the same thing with Paola. Yeah, and also Drake was a far cry from starting out like Eminem. I think one of his parents were pretty well-to-do, and he grew up in a very nice neighborhood in Toronto. So he it's not quite did. the same thing. Was it Richmond Hill? No, it was, I think it was Hill? Forest Hill. Forest Hill, Forest Hill. It was some kind of hill. Yeah. But anyway, we're not talking about Drake today. We're talking about the Paolas. And uh, the, the, the the cool thing was, though, do you remember some of the bands that we went to high school? And they'd put out demos, and they'd usually actually be decent. But I got to imagine these guys having that access to studio time probably sound a little better than the the, the studio, the, the, the demos our friends are turning out. Oh, yeah, because um, one of those things, because he was already working as a producer, he already had the great gear. He already had the right things. Whereas when you're scraping out, uh, like, you know, you're working your crappy mix jobs, trying to save enough for a demo. Mm -hmm. Anyone that will record you is probably, you know, beginning their career as well. They don't have the greatest recording gear themselves. So they don't have the greatest space with all the perfect soundproofing and everything. So they all sound a little, a little scratchy. And I'll tell you that that this recording did sound quite good. Uh, they managed to sell it at shows that they played in and around Vancouver. And the song was called China Boys. Now, I have never actually looked up what the true meaning was of China Boys. I know they did it about immigration to Canada. But I'm not sure if it was like kind of a racist thing that they were trying to do or if it was like supportive. But uh, I don't know. It's weird that we're talking about this song because it kind of feels a little dated, especially now that, you know, we're talking about stop Asian hate. You know, it feels well, I a mean, dated. at least at least the, they're not using the slur that. China oh, men. That's good. <laughs> that's not a, I, yeah. That. <laughs> uh, so I got to think better of Bob Rock than he'd write something racist. So I, I don't think that's what they were trying to do. That's but listening true. to the lyrics, it's hard to tell because it just kind of sounds like a fun song. And also songs of that time were really uh, toying with uh, with the Orient. You had Turning Japanese there by the Vapors. You had China Girl by David Bowie. It was a common thing to yeah. – uh, 
have that kind of influence in your uh, in your in your stuff. And I, I like the song. And we mentioned the first time that we recorded it. I kind of got Magnificent Seven vibe from the uh, the Clash on that one. Yeah. What do we have for entertainment? Cops kicking gypsies on the pavement. Now the news has left to attention. I was I was texting you before this or like last week. Mm. I was like, there's there's it's just that that constant like that drum beat just so yeah. like recognizable. That's why I was like, this sounds like something else. But well, was uh, that it? Was that the one that you were trying to to pinpoint? Uh, like when I was trying to say what. Yeah, did it wind up being the clash or was it something else? I mean, we'll get into it in a little bit, but that whole first EP has very much top to bottom clash vibe, but so it very well could have been an amalgamation of clash songs, but Magnificent 7 definitely is part of that. Now, with that release out there, because uh, I forgot to do this off the hop and I, I know that you had gone to great lengths to get this together, um, the, the China Boys single enters a musical landscape and Brian's going to paint you a picture of what that musical landscape looked at looked like at this time. Yes, thank you, Ted. By the late '70s, when the payolas formed and they reduced, or they released uh introducing the payolas a new wave of music yeah see what i did there yeah oh love it uh they were riding a crest of about 70s disco glam rock post-punk and a genre got slapped on all the music that you couldn't classify as rock in the traditional sense this was known as new wave and by the time the payolas formed in uh, i think it was 78 or 79 the new wave scene was bustling in pockets all around north america europe and even Possibly in Australia, too. Uh, in England, The Clash were still riding high off uh, several great albums. where They were transitioning into probably two of their best albums of their career. London Calling in 79, Sandinista in 80. Which, quick side note, when you factor how many songs are on both albums that they crank those out almost year after year, that's insanity. Well, it, it really there's just a lot of songs on Sandinista. Like, London Calling is a normal length for an album no, sandinista's no, two discs no but you actually it's three records but well, it's three uh, that three 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 and vinyls, actually yeah. when the when london calling because you got to think about how many songs are on there that was a double album it's like 17 songs yeah, but, but 15 or yeah it's it's a couple um let me doing research while you're talking here <laughs> this is what the show always devolves into it's like bill why. burr it's like he rants about something and he has to go look it up to back it up yeah, he so. spends half of his podcast looking shit up <laughs> <laughs> oh but, boy track listings hold on you got me on this here <laughs> oh god okay give me the cd there we go fine no it wasn't 21 tracks hold on I'm pretty sure it was hey, side one of london calling has five side two is five ten side three has four fourteen side four has five wow 19 tracks that's a lot yeah, it doesn't seem like it because we always listen to it on CD, so yeah. we can just burn through it. But anyway, as I swing back, uh, it blended, you know, punk, ska, surf, uh, dub, reggae, jazz, Dixieland. And so obviously those are easily staples in the new wave punk uh Scene back then. I love it through Dixieland in there though, because like <laughs> you will, you would hear a little bit of it here and there, but it wasn't like lots of bands had like clarinets. No, but I'm just saying that <laughs> wearing straw hats. 
But that's what New Wave was. It was everything. Yeah, the guys in the striped shirts with those little like yeah. garters on the arms. I don't know what the hell those things are for? I don't know either. Like I think if they yeah. maybe if they rolled up to short sleeves, it would like hold them up. But you yeah. never see any of those guys playing in short sleeves they, for their whole gig. They'd always have them in the the long sleeves. They would never. Well, it, was, it was it was part of the it was it was part of the costume, and to roll them yeah. up would be against code, I guess. I suppose. But anyway, so it, meanwhile, in England, the police put out Outlandos de Moor in 79 and Regatta de Blanc, which is basically white reggae. Right. And uh, they they blew up with such hits, hits as Roxanne, So Lonely, Message in a Bottle, now New Wave Classic Staples as well. Joy Division were primed to be the next big thing because Love was tearing, uh, Love Would Tear Us Apart was huge, but Ian Curtis, Ian Curtis tragically passed away by suicide so they never came to be but in those ashes new order came out and they put an album out around that time called movement which was uh and then they became a mainstay in the new wave scene in the 80s uh the cure put out a debut album called three imaginary boys which sold very well and gang of four put out that's entertainment and the jam put out sound effects which paul weller said was basically proclaimed it to be the jam's best album meanwhile in la the knack had my sharona and uh, their debut album was like multi-platinum is one of the, it was insane how big that one the go-go's put out beauty and the beat which is uh, a top selling album especially a debut album for an all-girl band and i gotta throw in my oingo boingo they put out their EP. always can't go anywhere <laughs> without mentioning oingo boingo you go down to the variety store for a carton of milk hey you ever listen to oingo boingo that's you oh ted what's wrong with that Maybe, you know what you were like? In maybe the, you're gonna brighten someone's day by br- bringing up Boingo Boingo in a weird in a weird situation. You know, maybe one they time, never heard it before. Maybe they're feeling down and they listen to uh, little girls and turns their life around. <laughs> one time I was in uh, when we were in Sonic Boom, mm-hmm. I bought one of their albums there, and I actually the girl recognized Boingo Boingo, so we started up a little conversation. I got sad. I was like, oh, I was hoping I can get her number out of it. <laughs> Didn't happen. But. Um, Anyway, they were about to have some uh, mainstream success thanks to a lot of Paul – or not Paul. I'm looking at the jam thing. Uh, thanks to a lot of being on a lot of John Hughes soundtracks. Um, and then, of course, in Ohio, we had Devo having huge success with Whip It. In Atlanta, there was the B-52s and R.E.M. And, of course, New, uh, New York City had the Talking Heads, Blondie, and pretty much the rest of the new wave scene was in, out there. However, except for really, like we've talked about, Doug and the Slugs, to my searching, I could not really find any new wave scene in Canada. So the, sta- the stage was really set for payolas. And I bring all this back history up because, you know, we talked about Maestro. He basically had to carve out hip hop in Canada. Mm-hmm. And and kind of make his way try to to the states to try to connect and a lot like Trouble Charger. There was a nice scene of pop punk that he they could have hitched their wagon to. There just really was nothing uh, in new wave in Canada, but the scene was explosive so much that you think that uh, the labels would have you know bought every every new wave sound alike that they could. So you think they could have gotten a little bit bigger. So I'm excited to dive in with you here, Sweaty Teddy, and see where it goes, where they went wrong. Well, let's keep swimming then. All right. Well, the China Boy single, like I said, it sold well in and around Vancouver. It caught the attention of A&M Records, and they were given the budget from A&M Records to record four songs. A little bit of a step up from the one song that they had earlier. And those four songs would comprise their first EP 
introducing payolas. And China Boys was on there. And uh, if you've ever heard the expression, I'll kill her, no filler, that's this album. I loved it. All four oh. tracks bring the punk rock energy. And the third track, Rose, definitely showcases the reggae influences. And uh, big fan of Paul Hyde's voice on this album as well. Uh, he, he sings in his British accent, doesn't try to hide it, which I absolutely love. And uh, reminds me of the jam, this album. That was the one note I had left. Yeah, I got a jam vibe. I really love The Clash's first album, and which was released in 77. And I think in China Boys, TNT... jukebox you really hear those influences like jukebox yeah. is basically uh the clash have a song called 48 hours i think it's called and it sounds exactly like it tnt could have easily been uh, like their version of white riot mixed with like beat on the brat with the or blitzkrieg bop, bop which everyone has the clapping there's always one or was it jackie is a punk it has like the clapping in it Sheena is Ramones. a punk rocker. Oh, that's a different one. Jackie's a punk rocker. Yeah, Ramones. All right. They all sound the same. Diversify <laughs> your portfolio a little bit. You know, it's funny. Have you ever seen the documentary <laughs> at the end of the century about the Ramones? No. It's really good. It was made in 2003, right after Joey died. And okay. uh, Dee and Johnny weren't far off. But uh, Johnny was such an asshole. Oh, a complete asshole. But it's, it's insane. Like, he has, like, no remorse about uh, even when Joey was dying in the hospital. He didn't go. I think he may have visited him once, if that. But he didn't yeah. go to the funeral because he couldn't be bothered to go back to New York. And he's like, I wouldn't want him at my, my funeral. What's the point? Like, he just has this, yeah. like, very hard stance. Like, I don't know it's what broke same, that guy. Same stupid haircut when he died, too. <laughs> no, he was always a prick. Like, you know the song, the KKK took my baby away. Yeah. That was from Johnny stealing Joey's girlfriend. Jo- Joey hated Johnny so much, he called him the KKK <laughs> in a song. That's what he thought of his own band map. Okay? I'm amazed Johnny that Ramon, Johnny Ramon was a prick. How the hell did those guys make albums They're when they couldn't even talk point? to each other? They're friends at one point, and the chemistry they had when they collaborated on the songs was working. They were making money. Why screw up a good thing? No, I you know, know they had producers just... and other people on the road that could hang out with. They didn't have to hang out with each other more than the hour and a half they're on stage together. I guess. Well, I mean, like just making a physical album. Like, is everything like? What are they children? Where it's like, can you please tell? It's like it's all through assistance. Like, can you please tell what? Joey to like sing properly? You know what I mean? Well, you don't know how badly they hated each other at the time. That's and true. as you know, with the friendship, you fight with your friends. Yeah. It happens. All right. But when you're friends and you have to work together, you got to put those differences aside for the time. And that's probably what it was. It was just probably when they stopped churning out albums that it was kind of like, all right, I'm going to go my way. You go yours and go fuck yourself. Yeah, basically. All right. Getting back to, to basics here. What was I going to say? Oh, here we go. 
those four songs on introducing the Paolas, they were good enough to impress the executives at AM Records, and they invited them to record, get this, Brian, a full-length album. It was released in 1981, and it was called In a Place Like This. Uh, it would be actually the fourth album that was produced by Bob Rock at this point. So he's just starting to build up his discography. He had produced work for a couple of Vancouver punk bands who are probably never going to cover on this show. Um, <laughs> one was called The Young Canadians. One was called Pointed Sticks. And one was called The Subhumans, not to be confused with the much more influential British punk band Subhumans. You know what's funny about Subhumans? I always see people with like their patches on like their backpacks and stuff like that. And I see their merch. I have never sat down and listened to them. And I kind of doubt that a lot of the people you see with their merch have. (laughs) It might as well just say punk rock. All right, I'll take that. Well, that's like uh, how many like t-shirt stands and stuff that we see yeah. at the mall back in the day uh, and it was all just like the same five or six bands there's like deftones metallica ramones and a couple more like that and but like yeah. how many people actually sat down and probably listened to the ramones they probably knew like i want to be sedated if that oh yeah well you know it, it was interesting too when and it's not just ramones uh you got this with like Johnny Cash too, yeah. where you'd see people wearing like Ramon shirts, or kids wearing Ramon shirts because like they're their parents after like Joey Ramone died or after Johnny Cash died, his merch became very, very popular. It is weird though how a death can be a jumping off point for a lot of people. Yeah, because yeah. that's clearly when these people started listening to that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like uh when I decided to go back to school, I I waited several years. So I was in my late twenties and I not friendships, but acquaintances here and there and i'd see people wearing like nirvana shirts and like bitch please you were born like the year before cobain died (laughs) like you got no ties you have no childhood like i have vague memories of watching much music or something and seeing nirvana on tv like vague but uh we also grew we grew up with rules for band shirts yeah. <laughs> at least with the kids we went to high school with, or it might be just because we've, we're in our adult years, we started to realize how destructive our friend group was to one another. You would get asked in the hall, can you name three songs by this band? If you're wearing that shirt, gatekeeping was everywhere. And <laughs> but that good. was like a rule. If you wore a band shirt, you better know their shit. Well, and I think that's something that friends. still comes to be. It wasn't even just our friends, just random kids would uh, kind of grill you about the band. It's like you almost had to pass a membership test to be in like the Kiss Army. Not that I ever wore Kiss shirts, but. But, but it's true, though. It, it's, it still goes on like that today. Actually, you know what? We, we, we went off last week about uh, Canadian TV shows uh, and like reality shows that Much Music did. When they did their VJ search and the one year they tried to make it like a reality show. There was one guy, and he was this—he was always angry. This guy too. And I don't know how he was. I think he thought that some people would want to watch much music and be slightly intimidated by their VJ. <laughs> he'd always wear band shirts, but they're always like rock band shirts. But whenever he would talk and they ask him to like show a little bit of his personality, he was always like pop plugging hip hop. So uh, Robin Black, who actually went from being in a punk rock band, and now he's like an MMA expert, which is such a weird pivot. Um, I don't know how he went from one to the other, but he did because he was scrawny back then, but now he's all buff. Uh, he asked the guy, I forget what shirt. It might have been a Leonard Skinner shirt. And he asked him to name five songs and he, he couldn't name one. 
So he told him to take the shirt off. He asked him why he was wearing the shirt. And he says, well, it's, you know, what people do. They, they wear band shirts. It's, it's part of the style. Oh, he couldn't God. even name Freebird or Sweet Home Alabama. He just knew it was a band. Oh, so he God. threw it on. And so he told him to take it off. And he said uh, he, he would uh, have him kicked off the show if he ever saw him wearing a band shirt again. If it was a band that he never listened to. <laughs> so took it off. And, of course, the dude looks like The Rock. He's, like, completely six-pack abs and everything like that. And I'm like... Yeah, it's hardly a punishment. <laughs> he looks absolutely. He probably got like there. ten dates the next probably day. Helped his, probably helped his chances. <laughs> anyway, getting back on track, we really have not dove really into in a place like this, which was released in 1981. Uh, really considered lost media to this day. It was never released on cassette or CD. It's not on Spotify. No playlists exist of the album on YouTube. I managed to listen to six songs because two of the songs from Introducing Palos are on here, and I was able to track down four of them from uh, YouTube, and I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, the song I'm Sorry I Did It For The Money was uh, the only single from this album that uh, wasn't included on the first EP. Says, I'm sorry. It's a nice ska little ditty. I really enjoyed it. Uh, what did you think of this album? I was able to find a torrent thanks to piracy not being illegal yet. So um, yeah. I found the whole discography, or at least the the essentials. I didn't I didn't find any of like the separate Paul Hyde shit or anything. I, but uh, yeah, I, whiskey. Whiskey Boy is very much kind of like it could have easily been on the introducing album, that kind of garagey punk rock kind of vibe. Sure, yeah. Uh, Too Shy to Dance is phenomenal. It's got like this really good bass line that I liked. It kind of had a bit of a kind of like a cure vibe almost. Uh, Okay. The the cure weren't like the cure yet because at the time they hadn't put out like their big hits. They were doing well. But the the, the cure we know now. I'm with you. That makes sense. I'm with you. Yeah, don't worry. I'm with you. Um, I'm sorry. I loved it. It was like. uh, That's a good one. Yeah, I'm sorry you did it for the It's just pure specials um, in a place like this was really good. And another song I really liked. It was a song that closed out the album. It's called Comfortable. Well, way up. Just ever had a trouble. Wake up, wake up. As long as you're comfortable. I mentioned this in our crappy recording, but I'm going to bring it up again because no one else has heard it. But uh, have you ever heard the song uh, My Girl Sally by the police? Oh, God. You asked me last time we recorded this. I should have gone and listened to it. I know. I just, it totally escaped my mind. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard it or not, Brian. It wasn't a single, so I probably haven't heard it. That's basically my big extent of the police is like that. And uh, I think Ghost in the, the Machine I had or something like that. Yeah. It's simply yes or no would suffice. But anyway. There's- it's a no, Brian. <laughs> or I don't remember it if I did hear it. So go ahead. anyway. But the, the whole point is like it had a very vibe like that because there's a spot where they do this random spoken word breakdown yeah. where he's just talking in his goofy British accent. And they did it in that too. And uh, so it kind of had a police vibe. But yeah, there's only one swing and a miss from this being a, a perfect album for me. And it's uh, this song called Female Hands. So just randomly gets ballady after sorry griff is because you know i've got this propped up on a box he's trying to scratch his face with the (laughs) box so it's moving around yeah 
All right, go back. Go ahead. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. It's, uh, yeah, this song, Female Hands, gets very ballady, and it's just very out of place. I keep dreaming about female hands. That's the weird thing, because you remember, like, back on the, the Maestro record? Oh, God, I always forget what it was song, but they had that one goofy love song that he put on, like, three of his releases. The, 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 now, granted, they're different songs for Paola's, but they do like to include those ballads that do take you out of the mood, because it's weird. It doesn't feel like the rest of the album. No, and it's it's one thing, like, if you're going to do a kind of ballady song, kind of keep it in your same vein. Like, when the police did uh, every every breath you take it's still yeah. kind of got that kind of new wavy guitar it's still got a bit of a reggae ish vibe to it it's you know it's completely different but it's still in the police kind of vibe whereas this is just like could have been done by some adult contemporary trash bag what uh, track is it on the album second last okay that's that's a good spot for it yeah exactly we talked about this how the album's gotta be like a concert right so yeah. put the slow one at the end you wind it down and then you kick it back up for the encore yeah. 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 So that, I'm okay with that positioning on it because it really doesn't take you out of your groove that badly. No, but it's still just. I mean, I, I understand the concert, the concert mentality of like your song selection. Right. But I'd, I'd almost prefer. Did I ever tell you? I think I've told you a story when when other Brian and I saw uh, Holland Oates in concert. Yeah. So it was around Christmas time. We, we slept all the way to New York just to see Holland Oates. Don't ask us why. But uh, they put on a hell of a show. And then they decide to have this random, like, pseudo encore. Like, the lights came on. And it was almost like this, you can stick around if you want to. But we have a Christmas album. And we're going to play a couple songs off it. So, like, <laughs> people were almost, like, confused. It's like. It's confusing. It's like they're, it's like they're almost going to play for, like, the guys that are sweeping up the popcorn. It's, it's like everyone's just, they're expecting to, like, file out. But uh, it wasn't like, but they did do a great cover of Christmas Must Be Night by the band. So I'll, I'll give them that. But um, uh, I, I get what Holland Oates were trying to do there. Like, the, so I guess their first, the mo, the bulk of their set was the hits, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of get that, hey, you know, we're going to play some songs off of our Christmas album now. I don't know why they didn't incorporate that as part of the show. Yeah, because same. everyone could sing along to Christmas. Just do like a, a three or four song little medley yeah. of it. Give people a taste for it. I'm sure people want to go out and buy it. Instead, that's just a weird move, turning on the house <laughs> yeah. lights and encouraging that people leave. Well, they weren't, but it almost that was like the vibe they were giving off. That's like, it, weird. It's, it's if the if the house lights stayed down, that'd be one thing. But it's like the house lights partially came up and they're like, yeah, we get that you don't want to stick around for this because it's just <laughs> random Christmas music. So I almost prefer if they put the ballad at the very end, just to like if uh, if you wanted to like flip the record and be like, all right, I'm good. I don't have to listen to it. To yeah. Get that last good song. The that was the whole point of my tangent. with. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That way the rocking is done. OK, we can just do that. Uh, actually, it's kind of funny you mentioned that Hollow Notes story because I've had that happen to me once, um, but not with a band, with a comedian. It was Norm MacDonald. And uh, when he came to Thunder Bay, it was funny. He toured with Kevin Nealon and Nealon does this tight 45 minute set. Oh, it's great. You know, real tight, real polished. And Norm comes on. <laughs> he rants and just tells these long-winded stories for like two hours. <laughs> 
eventually people started leaving and he was just like this towards the end after like two hours of this he's like yeah you go ahead and leave I'm way over my time I get it anyway just kept rambling and I stayed in my seat because I was loving it but a lot of people were getting up and leaving after he said ah it's okay you can leave well he did that I don't think he did two hours when we saw him in Hamilton but he definitely did it longer than the typical stand up set yeah it, it was in the vein of the so yeah because I've seen him twice, uh, three times. And when I saw him in Hamilton, it was very much like the Thunder Bay show. It was very long-winded. He just kept going. It was amazing. Um, and kind of on another level. Like he, But like when I saw him in t- Toronto, it was very tight and very polished. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Thunder Bay and Hamilton, I guess the smaller shows, right? He took a lot of liberties. So That's you know, thing. New, York, New York City show – you know, hometown crowd, maybe Holland Oates are feeling, ah, oh, we'll take some liberties with this bunch. Maybe. Isn't like the ho- uh Well, they're from Philly, but. All, like Denver? Oh, Philly? No, so it's basically a hometown show for them. Oh, don't tell it's someone Don't tell someone from Philadelphia, Nork, uh, New York's a hometown it's show. It's what, two like, hours? It's two yeah, hours? That's like you being is- from Hamilton and playing a show in London, okay? It's basically, you're basically there. Well, it's, it's better to say... That's like saying Toronto is Hamilton. We take offense to that. Oh, so I, I, people from I, Philly. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Well, sorry, everyone from Philly. All right. <laughs> I will say, Philly, your food is uh, – I'll take a cheese take over a uh, meatball sub any day. Although I do like a nice meatball sub. Nice <laughs> meatball sandwich. <laughs> anyway, getting back on track. Um Oddly enough, even though it got the good review from me and Brian minus one song, uh, the album was actually considered a commercial flop. It was a critical darling, however. One review I read described it as a bold and innovative and refreshing change of pace from the guitar-driven synth rock Canada's music scene had been churning out at the time. So it was it definitely stood alone. Now. To capitalize on this positive vibe that they were getting from critics, they decided to maybe get a little bit more commercial with their next release by hooking up with a musical legend, a gentleman by the name of Mick Ronson. And he carved out a very strong solo career from himself in the 70s and also worked on five albums as a session musician with David Bowie and even toured as a sideman with Bob Dylan and Van Morrison. Mick Ronson's crowning achievement in in his music career uh, was in 1972 when he co-produced the classic Lou Reed album Transformer with David Bowie. So the payolas were in very good hands when they went into the studio in 1982 to record No Stranger to Danger, which I like to call basically, they've reached the summit of Everest at this point (laughs) with this album. This is where their career peaks it is a great album not available on cd or cassette much like in a place like this but at least i was able to find a youtube playlist to listen to this one um (laughs) two singles came from it romance romance. which unfortunately failed to chart but uh the biggest payola hit that everyone knows. And uh, I went off. I'm going to clean up my act a little bit on this one. But it's a very, very sexy, sultry song. Come on, Red Fox. You go blue. <laughs> it's a song where you, ooh, you turn the lights down low. You break out your silk sheets. You light up a bunch of candles. Oh, eyes of a stranger. A nice, slow reggae vibe. You
that proved to be a big hit on Canadian radio. And even to this day, it gets a ton of airplay. It reached number four on the charts um, and even won a Juno in 1983 for single of the year, defeating Let It Go by Straight Lines, New World Man by Rush, Working for the Weekend by Loverboy. And your daddy don't know by Toronto. We'll probably end up covering at least Toronto. Probably I'll have to go back and listen to some straight lines. But Toronto's a band I want to cover in a future uh, uh, Canada FM. And uh, Eyes of a Stranger also did well in Australia, making it to number 22 and making it to number 22 on the U.S. rock charts. I think I told you my whole thing and I'll clean, clean up my story. I got really into Eyes of a Stranger when I did my college and I'm like back checking in college when I started going through music from the 60s, 70s and 80s that I wasn't really listening to before. I started listening to music my parents were listening to at that time. For whatever reason, Eyes of a Stranger just stuck out to me. And when we were in Niagara College, me and Brian for radio, film and television, I wrote basically a screenplay. Uh, it was basically a ripoff of Kill Bill, but it involved strippers. Instead of like martial artists, the strippers were going to be the martial artists, you see, Brian. <laughs> and it was really dumb. I didn't really have much of a plot. I just started writing just to see where it would go and ah, get bogged down in the dialogue of the first scene. And I'd, I'd make it such a – the first scene, it was – I wrote cast who I wanted to play the cast, right? So the first scene, it's two henchmen. I don't even get to the strippers yet. And they're driving to a strip club. And they're going to be played by two WWE guys. I decided that because I, I watched wrestling a lot of the time. I still do. And they were talking about the whole conversation I wrote was about Sublime. So that's really where my mind was at. I just wrote about stuff I liked. Anyway, the opening credits were going to be very James Bond-esque and have our main character, the stripper, doing a big pole dancing number to Eyes of a Stranger by the Paolas. And I thought that would be really cool. So that's the one cool thing I got out of my one kick at the can for writing a movie. Anyway, Eyes of a Stranger is a good song. Mixes the reggae, the new wave, all that good shit. I'm going to get off Eyes of a Stranger for a second. Talk a little bit more about uh, just how well-received and loved No Stranger to Danger was at the Junos that year. Bob Rock scored a win for Recording Engineer of the Year. Rock and Hyde won together for Composer of the Year for the song Eyes of a Stranger. And the band won Most Promising Group of the Year, beating our buddies and Duggan Slugs, as well as Headpins, The Spoons, and Strange Advance. So these guys were on top of the world. And the album was such a success. The album was such a success that uh, the song Soldier, which they recorded for this album, but it didn't make the cut for some reason. I have no idea why. It's a great song. They ended up releasing it uh, as a single. Be a number 25 of the charts it still gets a lot of play i like that whistling at the beginning of that one do you know that one <laughs> yeah i fucking can't whistle today uh what would you say when, when did you first become aware that not every song that you hear from a band on the radio are you necessarily going to get on the album the old bait and switch yeah like maybe they'll put it on a soundtrack or something like that or you gotta wait a couple years and it's going to be on a greatest hits or something yeah like that. yeah Shit, I can't think of uh, I've ever actually had that happen to me. It happened to me. My One of my very first musical experiences would have been with the Bare Naked Ladies. Lovers in a Dangerous Time, not on Gordon. Oh, yeah. Where the heck is this thing? It's on some hard-find Bruce Coburn um, yeah, tri- uh, tribute album. Yeah, that was a weird one, yeah. 
I'll, when I was, I know I've talked about my time on CJM before, but I played that song because I was doing like every once in a while I did like a cover themed episode. So yeah. I played that one because it, as much as I love the Bruce Coburn version, that one destroys it. I would agree. I like the Bare Naked Ladies one better. Um, I'm sitting there because I had to log everything. I was like, you have to put the album uh, that came on. And I'm like going through their discography. I'm like, where the fuck <laughs> is this thing? It's not on it. I'm like, shit. So I, then I'm like, eventually I found it on YouTube. I was like, oh, it's part of, on, uh, it's like part of Kick, Kick of the, the Darkness, Darkness. The, yeah. the Bruce, tri- uh, Bruce yeah. Cochran tribute album. Yeah, that was so, pretty yeah. off. And then later, like you hear stuff like, uh, what was it? The Green Day had that song, uh, Jar. Jason Andrew Relva or something like that. That was on the Angus soundtrack. That guy released <laughs> yeah. as a single. Uh, Rage Had No Shelter. That was released as a single. Um, Pearl Jam just – they went straight up would release just stuff off of singles like uh, Yellow Leadbetter is off a single. It was never formally put on an album. Last Kiss was a big was one that was just that a single. One, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it happened a lot more as the 90s went on. I know it happened in the 80s, but there was a period there where your music was easier to find in stores. <laughs> Will Smith's Just Cruisin' was only available on the Men in Black soundtrack. It was not on Big Willie style. Oh, that's, well, that's another one. The uh, there was, Foo Fighters had a song on the Godzilla soundtrack that didn't appear on any of their albums. I can't remember what it was yeah. called. It was like AX something 430. It was like a weird number. Yeah, but it, it was they never released it as a single either off of that. Like it wasn't a single for the Godzilla soundtrack. Cause I had a bunch of singles. Had, that, that had no Diddy. Up with me. Jamiroquois. I'm going deeper underground. <laughs> really? I didn't realize that was sound. a single. I believe so. Yeah. There's Shit. something. Oh, wallflowers. Heroes by the wallflowers. That was the yeah. other single. Yeah. You know what's funny about that soundtrack, or at least the the heroes yeah. video versus the P Diddy video? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're gonna say. How like they spent so much money on that video? The <laughs> Wallflowers one is objectively better, and they spent so much less. The Wallflowers video is just simple. Godzilla's yeah. attack of the town. They're playing in an apartment. There's some chick going to the corner store to get milk, which is the second time I've made that analogy in this episode. And Godzilla's <laughs> hanging around. P. Diddy's falling from a building. He's in a nice white suit with Jimmy Page and an orchestra. There's <laughs> F-16 jets flying by trying to shoot at Godzilla. It's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. Man, that was such a great time when music videos were so like, – the budgets were insane. They were like literally mini movies. This is – that was your entertainment. We talk about this all the time. I, there used to be songs that would take me forever to like just because I hated the video. Like yeah. um, Push It by Garbage. Yeah, a weird, strange, messed up video for a kid who's in the seventh grade trying to get into it. Now, the song like every... on its own away from the video is a great song. But the video is just weird. Every you know? Cranberries video is weird. Yeah, they had some weird ones, the cranberries. They had uh You know what's a weird what was the cranberries one? Most of their videos were okay. Well, there's like the one where the the the, the zombie video where it's all like the person's in black and white? No, the, the the girl's got all this like weird like orangey paint on her and it's all like weird looking. And oh, actually yeah. there I heard on the ongoing history of new music, there's like this number that gets smeared across like this window or something by yeah. this girl who looks like Dolores O'Riordan, um, who's like the stand in for the singer. And so this number on it is basically in reverse. It was the day she died. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Bummed that was like out. 20. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 20 years predicted. I was like, what the fuck? That's trippy. 
You know, it's a feel-good album, Brian. No stranger to danger. Uh, <laughs> I realized the next thing I wrote on the sheet was going to be my like personal review for No Stranger to Danger. Um, I thought it was an absolute masterpiece. Everything I look for in a new wave release with two-tone ska and big courses, but much like the in a place like this, a big, long, boring song right in the middle of the whole thing. Uh, for me, it was Hastings Street uh, that I really uh, get into so that was my kind of bummer but yeah. yeah it uh it starts strong it goes four songs deep when it's all fantastic i will say this though their version of rose on here i would i would take the introducing version a little bit different i would take the original version but still strong and then they hit hastings street and then it goes to uh, which yeah it just completely derails it <laughs> when i heard it i was like i started to listen to it and I'm like, all right, I get the idea. Click, and I click forward. Yeah. And yeah. I click forward because I, I can justify a slow song if it builds to something like a nice crescendo, like you know, like Bob Cajun by the Hip builds yeah. to this beautiful epic crescendo. And whereas like this is just like tapers off the whole time, it just meanders. Yeah. But it was just like what you said, takes you out of the groove. Yeah. Yeah. Like if they wanted to put that and uh, the other that pennies in the gold if they wanted to do that is almost like an intermission it's like here's a slowdown and then it picks back up and ends strong i'd be fine with that but yeah. it's just yeah they kept taking you in and out of it but you know the way we're listening to it maybe it wasn't really how it was intended to be listened to because we don't have the advantage right now of listening to this on vinyl so i don't i remember they were like right in the middle of the album it could have been when you flipped the disc and i could have been like hey we're gonna slow this down all right we're gonna slow then we're gonna build it back up but by that logic, they should have put pennies to gold at the end, too, to end both sides kind of quieter. But then it's just... There's no, just... they're saying that the, end, the, the, the other one doesn't end. The other one starts slow. So you get to the lull, and you stay down, and then it builds again. Because you've got the time to flip the album over. Well, know, maybe if, yeah, if, if they had put like, that... If they had started Pennies to Gold on the the second side, that'd be one thing. But there is a couple songs in between, so I don't think it was the kickoff tracks so either way. We're just nitpicking at this point, but <laughs> I, I loved it, and the critics loved it. The Juno Academy loved it, and uh, Mick Ronson was very proud of his work. So the band said, "Hey, we've got a good thing going here with Mick. Let's stick with this." And uh, they teamed up with him in the 1983 album a Hammer on a Drum. It earned much of the same critical acclaimed that No Stranger to Danger earned. Uh, it was ignored entirely, though, by the Juno Academy. They got nominations for Group of the Year and Album of the Year, but they respectively lost to Loverboy and Brian Adams. Nonetheless, Hammer on a Drum produced hits. Where is this love? And Wild West were released as singles but failed to chart. Uh, I'll Find Another Who Can Do It Right also failed to chart. But that may be because the label packaged it with the holiday tune, Christmas is Coming. Christmas is coming. And what's funny about that was I was bitching about that because it's, it's weird, I think, to put a Christmas song in the middle of like a punky new wave album. It is one of the best songs on the album. though. I was going to say that is going to be added to my Christmas rock and playlist this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, can, can, I, I, what do you think of 
this. Like if you're listening to to one of your favorite albums and it contains a Christmas track, are you pissed off? Do you change it if it's the middle of the summer? Do you listen to it and go, yeah? I mean, unless I was studying the like the back of the album, I might not know it's coming. So I'd, I'd give it a shot because you and I had our system where we'd sit down when we bought a new CD and we'd like you love to put on the headphones and like you'd yeah. zone in for the next hour and really like study it um yeah. so i'm sure people that's that's how they listen to it too so upon first listen i'm sure they're probably like oh, this is odd but uh you know it's funny what i was listening to this a lot in the gym last two weeks because okay. <laughs> it was like you know i was listening to it on repeat while i was like uh, yeah. to try to do my homework and i that was one of the songs i got most excited when it comes wow. on I'd be like yeah it was weird you know but i think it has to do with how holiday it is and i'll give you an example okay so and these are just both greatest hits examples but they're the best examples i can come up with okay i have the run dmc greatest hits and that includes christmas in the hollis now if it was anywhere between october and december I, I, I will go specifically to Christmas in the Hollis, right? <laughs> I always hit that. But if it's the dead of August, maybe I'll skip Christmas in the Hollis. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, um, there's a f- I have a few uh, albums that have random Christmas songs. Like the Walkman have a Christmas song on one of their albums yeah. and Run the Jewels have a Christmas song. It's They're not very Christmas-like songs, so it's well, actually this, easy. This is what I was about to say. Sorry. My other comparison, but Christmas in the Hollis is a super duper Christmas song like that. There's sleigh bells in it. They're talking about Santa finding an old man in the park. And his dog is an ill reindeer. You know what I mean? Like It's, it's yeah. very Christmassy. I have the Pogue's greatest hits and fairy tale of New York is on that one. And while that is a Christmas song, the bells are ringing out for Christmas Day and everything like that. I can also listen to that in the middle of August just because it's a great song that just happens to take place at Christmas. I guess it would be like you'd watch Jingle All the Way in December because it's a super duper Christmas movie. I can watch Die Hard in July, though. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah, just, just a great movie. action suspense movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's the point I'm trying to make. And I gotcha. think that um, Christmas is Coming falls more into the Fairytale of New York category than it does in the Christmas in the Hollis category. Yeah, that's fair. That's a, like the, I could I could keep listening to this album any time of the year, and I'd still probably not skip Christmas is Coming. It's just a very upbeat, great song. Talk about upbeat, great songs. The runaway hit on this album was Never Said I Love You. Never said I loved you. But didn't want to know. Which included guest vocals from Carol Pope of the band Rough Trade. Uh, Much like Paul Hyde, Pope was born in England but launched her career in Canada and uh, would eventually become the country's first openly gay music icon. So Carol Pope, a trailblazer. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll get to do a deeper dive into Rough Trade. They've got a classic tune called High School Confidential. Play a little bit of that, Brian. Blonde. Oh, I thank you, Brian. That's a little <laughs> teaser for a future episode that we'll play it uh, at some point. Uh, but Never Said I Love You did very well, soared to number eight on the singles charts, and still receives significant airplay to this day. I do love this, the keyboards in that one. It's very like Paula, Paula Abdul, the straight up, that like... Yeah. as I'm singing along to it. Oh, yeah. That song puts me into a good mood. And another standout song on that album is uh, Wild West. Nickel slots, erases 
It's got a very men at work vibe. Uh, very land down undery, even with the, like this, the 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 strumming of the guitar and like the chords, it sounds like it was just completely ripped. I told you my experience with that one the last time we record recorded the playlist I saw for um, Hammer on a Drum on YouTube. Some of the tracks were Paola's songs from this album. Mm-hmm. Others were just like random songs with the same name. <laughs> and like, no, it was not Wild Wild West by Will Smith. Don't worry. But it, it was this weird westerny instrumental tune. And I was just like, well, this is odd. And then I looked at the picture they had up with the track listing. And it definitely was not Paola's. So there's two or three tracks on there that was like that for me. So I did not get the full experience on Hammer on the Drum. However, I can say, while not as good as No Stranger to Danger, it was still pretty good. I think that they started to hit the other side of the mountain here. Uh, there was a lot more slow synth tunes on this one like we were complaining about one uh, (laughs) in a place like this this had quite a few of them um and the songs were a lot longer here most of them clocking in at about four and a half to five minutes however the mixing up of the genres that was still there and the upbeat stuff was still super upbeat so as a whole i did enjoy it just not as much as the last two yeah what are your last two cents on hammer on a drum brian basically you can kind of see the i guess the contemporary if that's even a word of it where they're yeah. really they're starting to utilize the sounds of the time like i was going through the albums that were like on billboard anyway that like the charting songs from 1983 so just like looking at it like you know total eclipse of the heart man eater uh billy jean the police every breath you take stuff like that culture club um so you can kind of see a lot of that very like the synthy but it's with a, the biggest take remember when we were talking about doug and the slugs how even when they got very yes. contemporary when they got very contemporary and they were using like the whatever jangly guitars or the big kind of heavy drums or utilize yeah. whenever they never lost that kind of pop sensibility. I kind of feel like they lost it a bit here. There's a couple of really great songs, but there's just the it's like uh, we've used this analogy before with the Simpsons. When you go from the glory days to every episode is genius and perfect to, oh, this was actually a good episode. It's, it's kind of like yeah. with this one, it's it, like it was before we were spoiled with those first two albums, where it's like almost every song's a home run, whereas now the, the ratio is really starting to shift. It's kind of like... To put it, the perfect example comparison for me for an album would be because uh, we're both ska punk guys. No doubts, Return to Saturn, where there are a couple of tracks on there that are kind of in the vein of Tragic Kingdom. They're still kind of ska. We're we're still feeling it, but the big singles were very pop, and it really gave you an indication of, hey guys. You're going to hear less and less of this stuff as time goes along. And I yeah. think that's kind of what they were doing. I remember at the time with that, I was like, ah, oh, they're selling out. But they hear it. You're like, no, they're just getting older. They just want to make different kind of music. And there's there's really nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We're going to take a big detour here because <laughs> you really can't tell the story of the Paolas. At least you can't story, tell the story of Bob Rock and Paul Hyde without talking about the charity single by Northern Lights called Tears are not enough. They both had a lot to do with this because basically A&M Records in 1985, they were sick and tired of them only selling stuff in Canada. They wanted to get them out there and get the appeal down south. Um, So to do this, they went and got them super douche, but still music legend David Foster to produce their uh, next album. Why is he super Um, douche? 
Oh, I talked about this before. Uh, there's a documentary, and damn it, I, I meant to watch it because I have I have it in like my queue on Crave. Uh, I actually saw Bill Burr uh, talk about this once. He's very much full of his own shit. And he talks about what a musical genius he was when he was a kid. And he believes all the hype about himself. You know, you always tell me, uh, oh, I think your mom hugged you too much. <laughs> this guy, this guy definitely like that. And he's also like a Hollywood super douche. Like um, he's married to Caitlyn Jenner's ex-wife. Well, he was married to Caitlyn Jenner's ex-wife. So he was a step dad to their kids Brody Jenner and the princes of Hollywood they were called that kind of circle um, and now he's married to Catherine McPhee who I told you played was a runner up on American Idol but also was for us for playing Pierce Hawthorne's stepdaughter on Community he's right. married to her and she's about 30 years younger than him and they just had a kid and it's it's the trophy wife thing you know right. what I mean guys are that young trophy wife tend to be douche just in my experiences I know you, you can't choose who you fall in love with that's true but still um yeah, Foster's just a bad guy. <laughs> I wish I had watched that doc to have specific uh, examples, but he's just kind of a Hollywood douche. Does that make sense? Even though he's Canadian. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's this weird stereotype that everyone in Canada is a saint. We know plenty of douchebags in this country that are just like pieces yes. of garbage. Exactly. That humble stereotype of Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. It's not applied to David Foster. <laughs> But anyhow, the, 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 the label hooked them up with the Paolas uh, to produce their next album to give them that push in the U.S. because he had a lot of credibility at the time. He was producing for Chicago and uh, uh, I think Phil Collins as well. He had a lot of credence down there with those acts. Um, but before he did that, he got together with Rock and Hyde um, and they together with Bruce Allen, who managed Conway Crush. We talked about him on that episode at the behest of Quincy Jones, who was putting forth a full compilation album to release We Are the World on, he went to like England and Canada and said, hey, why don't you guys put together some super groups? So they did. That's the whole purpose of Northern Lights. In fact, the title of that charity single, Tears Are Not Enough, that was Rock and Hyde's contribution to the song. They came up with that title. And then I think they wrote the song from there. Okay, Brian, here's my first question for you about Tears Are Not Enough. Yeah. And we can put this on there. We'll put this on the, the recording. Do you want me to list everybody who appeared on this song or just give me the highlights? I, I guess if I go through the list and I, I see someone I know, I'll mention it. And if I don't know them, I won't mention it. Do you want me to do it like that? And Well, I know Joni Mitchell, Neil Young are on there. Uh, yeah. Brian Adams. Yeah. Um, I think isn't Getty Lee in there or is he Getty part of the Lee chorus? Is in there. No, Getty Lee is in there. He's uh, got a solo. Is uh, Burton Cummings? Uh, yes. He's, uh, I believe he's the second solo in the song. Um, let's see. Uh, I'll go through the list. You stop me, okay? All right. Okay, Gordon Lightfoot kicks it off. And I think it's it, it's cool how they did this, too, because it wasn't just pop people. Like, they had old folk guys and rockers and stuff. So Gordon Lightfoot, Burton Cummings, Anne Murray, Joni Mitchell, Dan Hill, who is a, uh, a an adult contemporary artist, Neil Young, Brian Adams, Corey Hart, Bruce Coburn, Getty Lee, and Mike Reno, the front man from Loverboy. Mm. Also on this track, we had, and I'll just have to say the people I know, uh, Ronnie Hawkins, 
Murray McLaughlin, who I'll mention later in the episode. There was entire an entire French section, because of course there was. Yeah. <laughs> Donnie Gerard, who's with the band Skylark. Carol Pope appeared on this album, and actually the solo was her and Paul Hyde together. They kind of played off the success from uh, from Never Said I Love You. And uh, we also had members of Platinum Blonde and Parachute Club. Now, the chorus is where it gets weird. There was a lot of people from SCTV. Yeah. <laughs> the chorus. So you, you ever watch the We Are the World and Dan Aykroyd's there? Yeah. So like, what the fuck is he doing here? And actually, did you ever watch the Steve Harvey show? Uh, way back in the day. But he but... always jokes around because he plays a musician on that, right? He always jokes yeah. about how... He got replaced by Dan Aykroyd if we are the work. <laughs> There's Dan Aykroyd's there. It's because they just needed someone because they kicked him out. All right. So you had John Candy, Eugene Levy. Uh, who else here? Catherine O'Hara and Robin Duke, all of Second City, SCTV, all were in the chorus. So that's strange. Uh, Tom Cochran was in the chorus. Kim Mitchell. Oscar Peterson, who's better known as just a piano jazz guy. He was singing in the chorus. <laughs> Uh, Paul Schaefer, the Pride of Thunder Bay. He was in the the chorus. Uh, Ian Thomas, which is weird. They got Ian Thomas, but not his brother who was on SCTV. Dave Thomas does not appear, but Ian Thomas does, which (laughs) I guess makes sense because he's a singer. But Dave Thomas was on SCTV. I don't know. That's weird. Maybe he was. Um, Oh, Andy Kim was on there. Brian Good from the Good Brothers. They're a country band. Gordon Depp of Spoons. Richard Manuel from the band. He was in the uh, the chorus as well. And then, of course, David Foster played the piano on this track. And uh, Bob Rock was the engineer. And that is the lineup behind Tears Are Not Enough. And I'm sure Brian will play the chorus. How nice. Then to bring a tear to your eye. I will it's, say this. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I like it's, uh, you know, Canada likes to pound the drum of diversity. I will say this uh, is even very prevalent in our music like when you look at we are the world the it's very much of the a lot of contemporary people at that time but they're all mainly rock guys you get a couple of pop and a couple of uh like the uh like stevie and um the first we are yeah yeah not the crappy one there's like no rock guys on the second one no the second one is dog shit i would never talk about that one unless to say how bad it was (laughs) but yes weird people weird people in the chorus including including jeff bridges and rashida jones which i thought <laughs> Rashida Jones makes sense because Quincy's daughter, but still, yeah. Jeff Bridges is showing up in there with this Jeff Bridges beard. But yes, like the the '85, we are the world is uh, is very much of the the rock variety with a few pop people. Um, yeah. Whereas ours has a nice balance. But also, I will say I do prefer we are the world a little bit more. I gotta go with that too. But we are the I, world is, is very sappy, but it's more. It's just a better song. But I will say this: I will take the. 2012, 2008, whatever the the waving flag, the young artist for Haiti, the Canadian. Yeah. I would take that over. We are the world. <laughs> so would I. There you go. <laughs> when Kanon wrote one, he had a better song. And it's. They did. It's funny. I a lot of the solo artists in the the young artists for Haiti on their own, I can't stand. Like Avril Lavigne, the Jacob Hogard, the the dude from uh, the uh, what's the face Theory of a Dead Man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have no problem with 
Derek Wively, aside from the fact that his face looks like a foot. But, that looks uh, like Mickey Dolan's for the monkeys. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, some of those solos and Beaver and Drake, but like they all do really well in this song. The person who kills it in that one is Hoxley Workman. His solo is awesome. Play it, play it, Brian, play it. And we'll reach us and we'll see Love that. Love that. We can't believe that. That's better than uh, whatever the fuck Wyclef was doing. Oh, that stupid <laughs> Haitian yodel. Every time I fucking heard that, I lost my shit. I'm going to play it now. Now put Hoxley back on. And we'll reach us and there we go. All right. We're all right there. We're all good. All right. Got that awful all right. all taste. <laughs> and you know what? Even though it's your typical charity single, uh, it, it, it did well. Uh, as of 1990, it's made $3.2 billion for famine relief efforts in Africa, with 10% of the proceeds going to Canadian food banks. So it did well. Uh, oddly enough, did not receive a single Juno nomination. Huh. I don't I know. Mean, I figured that would have won everything, but it didn't get a single one. Maybe it's hard because it's like a charity and there's so many hands in that pie, so many cooks in that kitchen. And it's like it's almost more manufactured where it's like – not one individual band of people is working hard to create this great piece of work. You got some of the people at the upper echelon of the industry at that time yeah. coming together. It's almost like a cheat. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know what you mean. Okay. Well, that's behind them. Now they're doing a record with David Foster after they did this single. And the result was, here's the real world for you. And the album that marked the end of the payolas as we know them. This is really it. Um, Rock and Hyde weren't happy with the labels uh, meddling with this album. They weren't happy with David Foster's vision for this album. Paul Hyde has gone on record to say that the band wanted to evolve their sound eventually. And he's saying that this wouldn't have been the result of that, but they didn't get to do it their way and were on constant pressure to do that from the label. In fact, they they hated David Foster so much that in the liner notes for the Rock and Hide follow-up to this, uh, they wrote, a very special thank you to our producer, Bruce Fairbairn, who, risking sanity, did the decent thing and let us be ourselves. We can look in the mirror in the morning. And that's the way it should be. That was a little wow. dig in the liner notes for the Rock and Hyde <laughs> album, David Foster. Uh, one thing that he did uh, was to, to increase the commercial appeal of the Paolas uh, was to go full-blown adult contempo with their sound. Um, yeah. He also got a lot of other well-known own uh, adult contemporary artists involved in the sound. The song uh, It Won't Be You was co-written by Brian Adams and 80s singers Richard Marks and Paul Jans contribute background vocals throughout the album. Well, that makes sense because there's definitely, I got a, there's like one or two songs that are standout for me. Yeah, there's only two songs that really stand out for me, but a lot of the other ones feel like they're just Brian Adams is like, yeah, this isn't good enough for me. You guys take it kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. I know what you mean. It kind of feels like extra singles they had lying around exactly. that they were handing out. Um, this was a major disappointment, critically and commercially. Um, oh, they also relabeled the band Paul Hyde in the Paolas at this time. That's something I forgot to mention. So they weren't just Paolas. They were marketing them as Handsome Homer Simpson plus three. You know what I mean? It was Paul Hyde's I band. like it. 
they were dropped by A&M Records as a result of uh, no one liking this album. Got very negative re- reviews. One of them uh, that I read said, if there's one saving grace from Here's the World for you, is that it will make you appreciate the band's other releases more. Yeah. Which, uh, I, see, I didn't have that effect on me because it was so far removed from those other releases that it kind of sounded like a different band. And do you know what's sad? Yeah. Two years. It only took two years to go this far <laughs> off the spectrum. Because this That's was a- 85. The other ones were like 81, 2, 3, basically one after the other. Yeah. Um, but this one song, the, the the Little Boys, is the first song that I really, like after slogging through the whole album, I was like, okay, this is more vintage them. It had a very Cure yeah. vibe, that jangly guitar. But this other song called It Won't Be You, it's kind of a standard 80s dancey song with like yeah. very synthy, like fake horns. But the reason why it resonates with with you or with me, sorry, is because there's a line in it where he talks about I should have married into money. And it, it brings me back to my dad. So my dad, I think he knew for a long time that I was not going to amount to much because he told me and my brother that he said, you guys better marry someone with – and you can picture my dad's voice. He's like, you got to marry yeah. someone with a PhD. I'm like, why do they need a doctor? He's like, nah, Papa has dope. <laughs> so for some reason, that, that my brain connected to that song right away just for that one line. Because at first I thought, oh, you want them to look for doctors? <laughs> yeah. I'm a hell. Yeah, and so it's like he's like, I know. He's like, we don't have any money to support you. You guys aren't going to amount to Jack Squad. So marry someone with money. So it's just that like it's funny because that your dad once you once you realize that you weren't making the NHL, that's what he. <laughs> he's to go look for rich women. <laughs> Yeah, my my baseball dreams died at ten. My NHL dreams died at like eleven. So he's uh, but yeah, but then it, it turns into basically about like him marrying like a gold digger. So it's like an interesting song. But uh, but yeah, that so when I heard that line, it just made me chuckle because I thought of my dad. Because like my like I told you at the start of the show, my dad repeats the stories. He also repeated this joke for years into into high school, into college. Yeah. He still knew I wasn't gonna amount to much. Okay, so he doesn't say that to you because he doesn't think that you you wouldn't ma- win amount to much he says because he thinks it's funny and he wants to get the rise out of you that's what it is he believes in you i mean you're what only you're only 36 you're in the prime of your life technically i'm still 35 (laughs) 36 in november it's close enough (laughs) when this gets released you'll be 36 it's like a weird like backhanded kind of like hey you kind of need some more support there chief (laughs) well okay well, you were going through the songs that you liked off of this Wait, album. Those uh, actually, two- the one Sorry, go I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, uh, it must be love. Kind of sounded probably the most prime payolas on this. It must be love. I thought that was mm-hmm. a good one. Um, that was actually one of the singles they released. Managed to hit the prime number of ninety-four. <laughs> Here's the world got to number ninety-one. Stuck in the Rain topped out at 77, and the most successful single was You're the Only One, which made it all the way to 32. 
considering the much music uh, countdown was only the top 30, none of these would have uh, qualified. Here's how I categorize this album. Imagine you're listening to like the prime discography of the jam. And then suddenly they put out a new album. And the first song on that new album is never going to give you up by Rick Astley. <laughs> That's kind of where this was. It was a very sharp left turn. And uh, yeah, I, I don't blame the uh, negative comments at all. Well, um, I mean, if I yeah. if I was ex- if, if I was expecting a town called Malice and got uh, never gonna give you up, I'd be surprised. But I still enjoy it. There's so many clunkers on this thing. It's it sounds like a K car. <laughs> Don't you mean? At least that would be upbeat. Never gonna yeah. give you up, right? Yeah. Uh, now we can end this episode here, like we have so many times, and it just be a sad end to a great band. But fortunately <laughs> enough for us, the payolas were not done. But the first thing they had to do was they had to get the stink off of them. You know what I mean? So God was the payolas. God was Paul Hyde and the payolas. They kept their same lineup at that time, but relabeled themselves Rock and Hyde. That was step one. Okay? They signed a brand new recording deal with Capital E Records, and the result was Under the Volcano, which critics saw as a major upgrade from Here's the World for you. It turned out several singles, including Talk to Me, which didn't chart, the upbeat synth track I Will, which peaked at number 40. And the very Tears for Fears-esque Dirty Water, which peaked at number 20 on the Canadian charts. Uh, Still gets a lot of airplay today on Canadian radio, and it was their biggest charting uh, single in the U.S. It got to number six on the U.S. rock charts. So they did kind of have a hit down south when they were just kind of allowed to be themselves and they had nothing else to lose. Yeah, I I was actually, after the clunk fest that was the last album, I was pleasantly surprised with yeah. this one. There's also a really good song, and now you might not like it because you're a dirty heathen, but uh, there's a there's a song on here called The Blind, The Deaf, and The Lame. It's very spiritual, like religious-y, but it's like, it's got a very U2 kind of... Um, Oh, fuck. What's it called? Kind of one kind of uh, not quite. I haven't found what I'm looking for, but in that kind of like slower kind of melodical kind of YouTube. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's very good. It's uh, it's not like a drone song. It's it's a very well written song. Praise glory to And they call there's... me a dirty heathen too, by <laughs> like, and... like you're up in your apartment listening to Christian rock all day. I'm a very dedicated agnostic. I don't believe, but I don't not believe. I lazy man's atheist. <laughs> 
Say what you want. Agnostic. I'm a dedicated agnostic. But yeah, um, either way. Um, and then there's the knocking on closed doors was pretty good. It's it's I can definitely see why this one uh, could take a huge step up. Plus, with what was going on in 1987 musically, it was very like par for the course. But and I've said this before about some of these other bands where it's like if you're going to try to do what is kind of going on you to be noticed you almost have to be a standout and this one actually did have a lot more yeah. st- like they this one could have it got them to the next level but yeah well uh, but, but, you know you know what i think that they 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 ended the project kind of with their their chins up you know what I mean? They got to leave things on their turns before taking a big hiatus. And I actually thought that this was probably the best release since No Stranger to Danger. I really liked Under the Volcano. Um, in fact, A&M got so jealous of the success they were having as Rock and Hide, they still owned of the Paola's recordings. So they put out a greatest hits compilation. It's actually one of the only two albums that's available on Spotify called Between a Rock and a Hide Place. Clever title, right? But it's Rock Hide. says nothing about the Paolas. So if you go into the store... And you're looking for the, uh, you know, Rock and Hide. You can get this panel as greatest hits that looks like it's a Rock and Hide album. It's kind of a dirty, 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 dirty trick, yeah. but that's what the bastards did. So they didn't really have anything left to prove. And uh, Rock and Hide went out there and they uh, they explored solo projects throughout the 90s. Uh, when asked if the Palos had broken up, they'd be like, no, no just extended hiatus. Uh, Paul Hyde released a charity single for UNICEF with his buddies from Tears Are Not Enough, Murray McLaughlin and Tom Cochran in 1987 called Let the Good Guys Win. And in 1989, he released his solo debut, Turtle Island, which included the song America is Sexy, which reached number 28 on the singles charts. Not going to lie, not a big fan of either of those singles. I haven't heard of them. They're not very good. He was really trying to do something really cachet with America's Sexy, and it just I, it didn't work for me. Um, and then Let the Good Guys Win is just kind of bad. It's like almost like a country song, and it's very it's it's charity schlock. You can tell they made it for UNICEF. Do you know what it's? Do you know what it sounds like? Almost it's uh, especially because it was the late '80s. It almost sounds like it's for the American in the Gulf War. It's like a dirty country song, like Let the Good Guys Win. A little bit. A little bit, but in Canada we do that kind of song, and like we give the money to like poor children and refugees and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's how we spread our charitable will. We're in the U.S., so it'll be like, I don't know, give it to the Patriot Fund. What does that do? Hey, we'll find out one day. It's it's a random slush fund that gets funneled back <laughs> into the government. And the Federal Reserve. You <laughs> <laughs> got me going off on Bill Burr there. Man, we've mentioned him a lot in this episode, too, haven't we? <laughs> anyway, uh, Hyde released uh, five more solo albums between 1996 and 2018, but nothing made any sort of impact on the charts. Now, we all know that Bob Rock will become would become one of the most sought-after um, rock producers in music history. It's kind of funny. Uh, have you ever watched Todd in the Shadows on the internet? No. He's a great music critic on the internet. He does a show called One Hit Wonderland. He reviews new pop stuff. But he, he the whole thing is he's got a hoodie on. He's like in the shadows playing the piano, and he'll go over music reviews. Uh, and he has a thing called um, 
train records, basically the one album that derailed a band's career. So this week he did it on St. Anger by Metallica, an album that was produced by Bob Rock. And when Todd describes Bob Rock, he's like, he's produced some of the greatest music of all time. And even when he's produced for bad bands, he's made some of their greatest music of all time. Even if it's still not very good. And he showed a simple <laughs> plant plague. And I was like, yeah, it sums it up. He, he does the best he can with what he's got. Uh, and he hit his crowning achievement in 91 with the release of Metallica's Black Album. Some say one of the greatest rock albums of all time. Many put it in one of the top two or three greatest metal albums of all time. Currently sits at number 255 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 albums of all time. We, we could be here all day listening off Bob Rock albums. In, in fact, the name is right there. I wanted to do a marathon to raise money for this show. We could call it the Bob Rockathon and just listen to all of his albums and review them if we wanted to. He's got that many. Uh, and in 2007, he was given a Juno Award for Lifetime Achievement and later that year was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Kind of feel bad for Paul Hyde, though. You know what I mean? He did so much. and They did so much of that work as a team in the 80s. And the payolas kind of fell by the wayside. There's actually no direct honor from them, from uh, the Juno Academy or the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, anything like that. It's just Bob Rock that's become the legend and not the other dudes. I should also note that Rock released a solo album in 1992 with his band Rockhead. They uh, released two singles and even opened for Bon Jovi on a North American tour, but none of that really garnered much mainstream attention. If you get to listen to the album, though, it's pretty good. It's it's more hair metal than any of the uh, Paola stuff, and I personally recommend their song "Bed of Roses." Good little good little hair metal song. You know, I wonder the whole trajectory of his career could be completely different if his name was like Sanchez, <laughs> or just a different style of music. Bob Opera. Yeah. Bob Waltz. You know, Bob same Dixieland. <laughs> you and me would like that. <laughs> Not Dixieland jazz. That'd be a hoot. Um, well, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to go back because one thing I noticed, and like this could almost—I mean, I don't know if this would tribute to some of the lack of success, but I noticed over the with each passing album, the Britishness of Paul Hyde's voice seemed to dissipate. Um, yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. Did because I never checked liner notes or anything. Did Paul Hyde sing on every song, or are some of those Bob Rock? Because the 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 singing sounded very different. The 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 accent was gone. So I don't know if maybe Paul Hyde either took singing lessons or maybe Rock took over as the years rolled on a little bit. You know, we 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 pat ourselves on the back so much in the promotion for this show, but sometimes we are not experts. <laughs> don't have an answer for you Brian. well that's okay no i just like because i'm i just i noticed that as and so um it makes me wonder if bob rock did sing more it makes me wonder what the dynamic would have been like if he sang more at the beginning too so like some you'd have that kind of britishy singing then other ones you'd have less but unless paul Hyde just made an actual attempt to try to lose the accent that's the only 
but that's we'd have to wait and get the uh, proper the data. Well, if your uh, assessment is correct, his accent would have magically returned in the late early 2000s. That doesn't make any sense. Late 2000s, pre 2010. How's that? Okay. Um, in 2006, Rock and Hyde officially reunited as a duo for the internet-only singles "Bomb" and "At the Angels' Feet." They released a seven-song EP in 2007 called Langford Part One. Remember, they met in high school in Langford, mm-hmm. British Columbia. Yeah, uh, and reunited with their "Here's the World for You" bassist Alex A. Train Boynton for live performances. Uh, now, these uh, the the album uh, Langford Part One actually features Jeremy Taggart from Our Lady Peace on the drums. He kind of jumped in as their new drummer. Uh, as far as the album goes, even though Hyde's voice has seen better days, that's the thing. It's it's English, but it's rough. <laughs> I don't know if he was a smoker or not, but his voice is, has a little bit of rare and dare to it. Still really like this little EP. Uh, a lot less production heavy than their late 80s releases. Nice and stripped down the way I like it. Although the song Revolution Jam Up is a bit of a train wreck. I think they were kind of – because you know how they had that like jam – in uh, not jam clash influence in their early albums mm-hmm. i think they're trying to go like the joe strummer and the mescaleros route for this ep oh, okay. and they did have a song where i believe paul hyde tried to rap oh, good or they brought in a guy to rap who was not that good a rapper mm-hmm. and that was that track which i wasn't a big fan of but the rest of the album i like did you get a chance to listen to it no. Oh, okay. Well, nothing new has come for the Payless since 2009, but like their first um, hiatus, the band says they have not officially broken up. Now, usually at the end of our Canada FM episodes, we rack our heads trying to figure out why, oh, why did these bands not make it big in the U.S.? I think it's pretty open shut with this. Their principal songwriter and producer, he had bigger aspirations beyond the band. He... I think may have been just more comfortable making music for other bands. And that's the route he took. And they're happy with their catalog. And I'm happy with the catalog, except for here's the world for you. Um, and I really think that that's it. Uh, I know what you mean, though. In the, in the world of New Wave, I'm surprised that they weren't didn't have that bigger presence in the U.S. But I'm not sure if they wanted that. I know they definitely resented their label for pushing them that way. So I, I don't think any of them are going to are going to regret the decisions that they made with their career or regret not making it bigger as a band down south. Well, and that's interesting that the it wasn't till the almost the end when the label were being like really. Because it seemed like the first three albums, they made what they wanted. And then yeah. the, the the one that really fudged the Huggies is um, uh, the one where they had the most label interference. But you think that if they wanted them to be more successful, because it doesn't sound like they were pushing them that deeply down. So like they weren't like peddling it to K-Rock a lot. They weren't, you know what I mean? They weren't doing. They the did work. a little bit with uh, beginning on No Stranger to Danger. They did because, they, they, you know, Eyes of a Stranger charted. In the U.S., so there was some push from American radio, but it, to, I, to get yeah, I just played. I can't I can't understand why those first two didn't chart at all. Even even if they were like high up, even just getting something out there, because like I I did that whole long spiel for a reason because there there was a scene <laughs> that was just like ripe with the, and like pending like I don't know if it was if they needed to move to be to the states, get out of Canada to maybe be immersed in that where they might have some support. Maybe they could have gotten on a different label. Um, I don't know, but. Uh, I, I will say that uh, back then, 
music was a lot less accessible. So I think because, you know, Introducing the Pillows is only four songs. They weren't going to try to to market a four song EP down south, you know, and then you're into a, in a place like this. So, you know, maybe they could have pushed that a little bit harder. But I don't. I just don't see the opportunity from the label. If I had a label and I had a great band that only had four songs, I'd wait until I had a full blown album under my li- under under my belt. You know what I mean? And I think that based off of just the tunes on in a place like this, which was pushed down south, that could have fitted with the new wave scene at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like I said, I feel like they were content, and Bob Rock did make it big in, in the south. He did. It just in a different way. You know, it's weird. I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. We'd have to Google this, but isn't Tom Lord Algae Algae Algae? Isn't he Canadian too? Let me check. Because there's there's Bob Rock. There's uh, another producer who is Paul Langlois from the Transcon Hips brother. It's like John Langlois or something. He's also a very sought-after music well, producer. It's yeah, weird that... Langlois are a big one. Uh, Tom Lord Algie's from New Jersey. Oh, is he? Okay. Because for some reason, I, th- I thought there was another mixer who was also who was Canadian who had a lot of like uh, clout. But because it's between the Langlois and Bob Rock, the Canadians have their thumbprint on some. Yeah, we we we. It, and that is weird albums. though. That, you know, the, the 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 musicians. There are quite a few successes to come out of Canada, but there's a ton of producers that have come out of here. But yeah. then again, that's that's a that's a realm where your work speaks for for itself. Well, like look at uh, yeah, Josh Ramsey from uh, Mariana's Trench. Yeah. Has- found more success as a songwriter nameless kind of man in the shadows than a front man of his own band well we're going to be covering that in season two so <laughs> don't give too much away Brian. uh yeah so that's basically this episode of canada fm just just as the band just kind of stopped it just kind of stops you know there's nothing more to say well Although next oh go ahead sorry i just wanted to say uh do you know in your notes how often the lineup shifted Oh, enough that I stopped keeping count. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, well, like Rock and Hyde were always there. Um, it shifted a bunch of times before they did um, in a place like this. And then, yeah, again, it would shift. And for some reason, I'm not sure why. Here's the world for you. They just liked that guy who played bass for them, A-Train. So they mm-hmm. kept him around. But, yeah, no, they, it, it would shift per album. And it was just two. And they would, they would like sometimes have a keyboard player and sometimes just be guitar, bass, and drums. And they right. had their bass player also played sax. Um, so they did have some, like, music, you know, instrumental shifts as well. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I'm curious, too, is if maybe if they could have kept, like, the, the lineup together from those first couple albums, maybe they would have been able to recreate bigger hits. I don't know. I don't know. How, uh, you with, know what? With Rock and Hyde kind of shoving it where they want, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they probably played the bass and, like, just play this on stage. Well, Bob Rock, that was one of the things was uh, that I learned from that that's thing I watched about St. Anger was Jason Newstead and left Metallica and Robert Tarillo was not a member of Metallica yet. So Bob Rock played all the bass on that album. Hmm. So that's very likely too. But one of the cold hard facts that you don't believe when you're kids, you believe that every member of a band is meticulously chosen and uh, they're all friends and stuff like that. You don't realize that it's, it's, it's a company. You know what I mean? You'll get one or two people. They'd be the leaders of the band or the boss of the band. And they're, you know, members come and go around that, uh, around that. 
well, look at uh, the Smashing Pumpkins. It's basically Billy Corgan and Jimmy Chamberlain. Everyone else is interchangeable. Because Billy Corgan played Even bass. Jimmy was interchangeable. Yeah, but they didn't have the same success with Jimmy. That's why he, out of all the people, he was most in a rush to patch it up with him. Once basically, his whole well, thing I, was just get him clean. But uh, I guess that was the thing, though, with Billy, was that he couldn't play the drums. Exactly. <laughs> He just couldn't get the hang of the drums. Um, but yeah, like he played Darcy's bass. He played all the guitar parts, and he basically only needed James to be on stage. Yeah. Just control freaks, man. That's what happens. Yeah. Actually, I've, I've seen Smashing Pumpkins twice, and I don't think either time did they have Jimmy Chamberlain. Remember one time the drummer was literally 19 years old. Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> and I was with you with that one, yeah. Yeah. And then the second time I saw him, it was weird because they had a guy playing bass. And Billy Corgan was like, I think it's the first time we've ever had a male bassist. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. Because they're all just wearing, like, plaid jeans. Like, there's no, like, black. And that was the show they did with Manson. And so it was weird. Like, they toned down the goth stuff, too, on that last tour I saw them. But they put on a great show. I yeah, actually the- time that show they did the first one. Well, I had only seen them for that Oceana album, which I still thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, it's funny because they they had the kid drummer and they had a second Asian guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is kind of a sad thing is um, some bands. I don't know how much of if any of this is going to make the, the thing, but some bands will recruit members based on look. Oh, yeah. They want that look going up. And there's a lot of racism in rock, too, because you could find a guy, a black guy, play drums, and some bands would be like, yeah, it's not, it's not really the, the look of this band. You, like, that was the thing. And then other bands were like, oh, yeah, we, we'll, we'll give us three women to sing, black, <laughs> black women to sing background vocals. We love that. Like, that, that was a whole thing, designing your band based on race as well. Let me think of two black drummers. I think Dave Matthews is drummer. Oh, the the band, which I love, the old joke used to be the Dave Matthews band was that the bass player, Stefan Lassard, was the only uh, guy in the band who wasn't African-American because Dave Matthews was born in South Africa. You do realize South Africans are still white. Well, some are. Yeah, but he's African-American. Just saying. Anyway, but yes, and isn't the isn't the drummer from Yellow Card black? Or at one point they had a black drummer? Or is that the guy that played the violin? No, he was Asian. Oh. I think they had a black drummer. I could I be wrong. Of. I'm not saying it's. I'm going to like Yellow Card any more or less because of it. I'm just trying to think. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is what you were getting into about they always had a girl on bass and always had an Asian guy on guitar. Uh, that was probably Billy's thing, that he thought that looked cool. So he went for graphics, you know? Or maybe it's one of those things, the label, because when they sign them, they're like, I like this look. And then so when they slowly started to go in and out, they're like, we got to keep this look yeah. together because the label pressure or whatever. But I that, that could be it, too. Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing a thing about the Pixies and when uh, Black Francis put that band together, he specifically put in the label that he wanted a female bassist. Well, that's just sexism. Right and there. That's, that's what he wanted. That's the look he had in his head. So because he, he was just, was he trying to recreate uh, what's her face? Talking heads. Uh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted, he liked that look. So that was that was, again. Although it's, it's, it's a thing that people would do. Like Tina Weymouth actually is a pretty solid bass player, all things considered. Like she's not anything crazy, but like she's pretty good. Kid Deal's a good bassist. Yeah. You no, know, she had a good band, The Breeders, too, that came out of the Pixies. So Kim it's Gordon, not that people were getting that. female bass players thinking. <laughs> Sonic you sucks. I know I don't like them either. I was yeah, just trying to think of the other female bass players. I've never been able to get into that band. 
ever, and I have tried. And they, they, they just they're don't definitely, like them. They definitely get a lot of extra hype than is deserving. Yeah, I just don't think they're very good. Anyway, that's our show this week. To quote Kevin know, James, it's a stinkeroo. Not our show, the Sonic Youth. Let me do my brother's thing. We're, uh, we're, no, my, my thing where I'm trying to get you off the phone. And, no, this is my brother where he's trying to keep the conversation going. Anyway. Oh, you want to keep talking, Ted? I'll talk all night. <laughs> um, next week's going to be an interesting one because next week is one that I had to wrestle with myself to do. But Brian convinced me it was a good idea. My wife convinced me it was a good <laughs> idea. And even though mainly we talk about bands on the show that we personally really, really like and listen to a lot of, this is a band that at one point in my life became the bane of my existence just because they were everywhere in Canada. It was our answer to Hanson, the Moffats. We are going to cover the <laughs> Moffats in depth next week on Canada FM.